This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As I said before the break, the phone lines are filling up. So let's start by taking a couple. We've got Marilyn and Lindsay. Hi, Marilyn. Good morning. How are you? Fine. Good afternoon. Go ahead. Good afternoon. Um, I just wanted to say I had for a patient to protect herself. um, I had surgery a week ago. And when the nurses brought me back into my room from the OR, I asked both of them if they had double vaccination and they assured me they did, and I was good with it. But I had heard that not all hospital staff have to be vaccinated, or it's not mandatory, and some weren't. So me being a nurse, and I remember back in the day when they wanted us to get the flu shots, and they wanted to make it mandatory, and they tried to, and the union went to bat, and not everybody had to, so not everybody did. But I have a friend that is... uh, was a director of nursing down in Picton in a, in a retirement home, no, nursing home. And she told her staff, you will all get the flu shot. And if you don't, don't bother coming to work because these people here deserve to be covered, protected. And she said not one person gave her a hassle. Well, that's uh, she got she got very lucky there, Marilyn. Uh, she thanks. Was a very good person to work for too. I'm sure it's her personality is. Amazing. Marilyn, thank you for sharing that. And that, that is the perspective that you're having some uh, medical procedure that's necessary. You're vulnerable. You're not going to turn your procedure down and, and no. you don't know. I mean, that, that's the point. Thank you for very much for your call. And let's get Rosie in Guelph. Hi, Rosie. Rosie, are you there? Hi, Go ahead. Maybe you have a question for the doctors. Are the people who choose testing over vaccination responsible for the cost of these daily tests? Clearly I find not. that thing would be a great deterrent. <laughs> okay, Rosie, thanks for that. Thanks. Uh, yes, they clearly it is, as we said in the earlier segment, it's, it's an added expense. Um, I want to turn to uh, booster shots, and we do have a couple of calls about that. And uh, the United States uh, has already started offering booster shots for vulnerable populations. And as soon as it's approved, they plan to offer it for everyone eight months after full vaccination. In Israel, they're already doing it for the 60 plus population five months after vaccination. And I, I have to have a shout out that that the study, uh, the important study on booster shots, is, it was right here in Canada. So, uh, Dr. Hota, what's uh, your take? So, you know, in terms of the third dose of vaccine, where we actually have evidence that that is a useful and important protective mechanism is in people who are quite immune compromised. So we're talking about people who've received, you know, organ transplants, who've had stem cell transplants on certain chemotherapy. We're getting more and more information that, you know, a single dose certainly doesn't provide much protection, even two doses. Some people will have very little antibody response, if any, um, and a third dose actually can boost that to actually provide protection that's still not going to be um, potentially as high as what you would be if you didn't have an immune compromising state, but at least a, a better protection than what you'd have with two doses. So I think that we'll be seeing that come out. And I, th- I think that's very legitimate to be offering the third doses to people who are immune compromised. But when we start talking about broadly giving that out, I just don't see enough compelling information out there. And I feel as though those doses could be in a more, you know, equitable and wise way to protect the entire global population, um, especially knowing that there are many countries out there that really haven't even vaccinated, you know, more than 1% of their population. It's very, very difficult for me to overcome that. Uh, Dr. Bowman, that, of course, is the ethical question. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, non-vaccination, is it's even the case in some very advanced uh, countries like Australia, New Zealand, who just read about a, a, quote, snap lockdown. Yeah, and look, I couldn't agree with Dr. Hoda more. It, 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 it's very clear. 
So epidemiologically, I would also argue that, you know, look at me, I'm the one starting with epidemiology, and then I'll go to ethics. But anyway, you know, as long as you've heard this a lot of times, but as long as this virus is out there mutating, and, and remember that in many low income countries, it is really, you know, no one's interfering with the virus whatsoever. So it makes sense to try and maximize as much as we can vaccination rates globally. Ethically, it's crystal clear. Now, I would never for a moment, the, the kind of patient profile that Dr. Hoda described is, is absolutely, they need all the help they can get, and we have responsibilities to get them that help. But what a lot of countries, the U.S., and I suspect Canada very soon are going to say is there's enough vaccines to do everything. But there kind of isn't. And what will happen, because we've made such a minimal commitment to low-income countries so far, and look, this story is not over. We will have to deal with the moral legacy of this when it's over. And a lot of the perspective right now is national, but in the years ahead, it will be global. And I think there's a lot of reasons at this point to protect our most vulnerable and to try and move extra uh, vaccinations into lower income countries that really need them. Although and, and so does Australia, by the way, and New Zealand, as you've said. I mean, they, they need a lot of help, too, to people that need them. Full stop. Uh, you know, um, first of all, last week we learned that that tens of thousands of doses of Moderna were discarded here because people didn't want yeah. them and they were not sent abroad. And, um, yeah, that's uh, certainly inexcusable in my opinion. And uh, just refreshing your memory, just before we went to air, Justin Trudeau really alluded to booster shots being available for everyone here. He said, we've got agreements in place that would cover that. Let, let's take a couple of calls. We've got Nelson and Strathroy. Hi, Nelson. Good afternoon, Libby, and to the doctors as well. I agree with everything you guys just said. Uh, we all, majority of the country, from what we're, we're saying, we have our second shot. Let instead of going to the boosters for ourselves, let's help populate or help the rest of the population getting at least one dose because they don't have them. Let's help the world get they get their doses and get rid of this COVID nineteen. Nelson, thank you for that. Let's go to Jody in Toronto. Jody, are you there? Jody. Uh, okay. Jody does not appear Hi, to Libby. be. Thank you for taking my call. Okay, there you are at the last moment. Please go ahead. <laughs> You're on the air. I have a question about the booster shots. Go ahead. Uh, in the states, they're waiting uh, the eight months after the second shot, but there they got their second shot within the time frame that was recommended by the pharmaceutical companies, which was the 21 days or the 28 days. But here, some of us had to wait four months in between shots. So is, is it the same for us that we would still have the same coverage in, uh, after eight months, having to wait the four months in between the first two shots? Well, I'm, I'm going to let the doctors answer, but I don't think there hasn't been any decision on booster shots and when to administer them to the general mm -hmm. population. And... Uh, the doctors we have here today don't think it's a brilliant idea. Dr. No, Hoda, do you have anything to say to Jody? But, yeah, I mean, it's it's actually a great question because, you know, I might say booster shots for everybody right now doesn't make sense in my mind. But we may come to a day where we do understand that in the general population or in other groups, that immunity will come down after a certain period of time, and maybe we will require third shots, you know, booster shots on a regular basis, perhaps even in the future. So we do have to understand that question of, you know, when is the appropriate time to do that? And some of that will come from the science that will emerge. Um, but the issue around people having a delay between first and second dose, I don't think is going to be a problem. We would be counting from that second dose where you are considered, you know, two weeks after that fully vaccinated. Um, and so far, to reassure those who did have to wait the longer interval, there has been nothing that's come out to suggest that we're in a worse position for having done that. In fact, there's data to, so to show that on a population level, we did the right thing by actually trying to maximize first doses 
uh, before getting, you know, prioritizing their second doses. And even on an individual level, you may be in a better place. It's um, a little hard to tease out the data, but certainly nothing negative about it. So, you know, I think uh, when that time comes, it'll be in between the two first shots, like when they started off with the second shot, like where we... Uh, further behind on no, the no, that's what no. the doctor is saying that yeah. we were not we're that not, no. that there was no issue with that. Jody, uh, I hope that answers your question. Uh, we're waiting for more answers, all of us. Thanks for your call. Um, we are uh, heading into the home stretch here. So uh, again, Dr. Bowman, on the mandatory vaccine front, it it looks like. The government is going to put in, into place what is already in place in a number of hospitals. So, <laughs> good news? Yeah, no, look, it is good news. But when we extend mandatory vaccine, you know, I'm not a believer that one size fits all. Um, we really have to stay with the evidence and consider what population it's in and why we are using it. Um, so, you know, I would argue as well, this has become so political and so emotional recently that it's larger than life and it's going to happen. And I think at this point we should do it and do it well. Um, I, I just want to make a very, very short point, Libby, that, that with our prime minister announcing boosters for everybody, I really fear that one of the biggest problems with calling an election now is that so many decisions may be driven for political reasons. And this worries me tremendously. Well, he didn't quite announce it. He said, okay. we have agreements in place that we'll be able to okay, good. provide that. that. So everything okay. is, you know, political. Uh, okay, let's give him the benefit of the doubt for now. But let, let me turn that into an if. Okay. Okay. Uh, and and Dr. Hota, so I, I mean, this announcement for people in your health system, it's just business as usual, I think. It is. I mean, in many ways, it's helpful because, you know, there's more solidarity if we're all taking the same approach, you know, and and it doesn't mean that it's different hospitals making decisions, uh, you know, independently. So I think, uh, you know, I've always said a provincial approach is what we need for this issue. And um, so I'm happy to see that we're moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And on the question of booster shots, uh, are you aware of studies that are underway to, again, uh, you know, maybe look at an interval uh, or at when immunity generally wanes? I am aware that those studies are ongoing. I mean, the original participants of the clinical trials are still being followed out. And as time goes on, we, of course, have to wait for that time to occur for the understanding to be uh, there, not just on what happens from the antibody levels, the protection that you can measure in the blood, but also in real life, are they getting infections down the road? So that's really important. There's more than one endpoint to look at uh, in a study to understand whether or not boosters will be needed and when, if they are. And a question that sort of cropped up again in our previous segment, Dr. Bowman. Uh, so the thing that people who don't want a vaccine are now saying to a large extent is we don't know the long-term effects. How do you respond to that? Well, they're right. Um, but there's no reason to believe there is any problem with the long-term effects. Um, but look, that, that is a, the people that I have spoken to, and I, speak, I do speak to a lot of people, um, some healthcare workers and very educated, uh, you know, the, the final point that they stand firm on is, you know, talk to me in a year or two or three. Well, that's not the point because we've got a crisis now. But the, the point would be, show me the long term data that there's no and there's nothing to indicate that there will be any trouble at all. But look, I'm going to say they're not wrong when they say that a long term data, obviously, by its very nature, takes time. Dr. Susie Hota, I'm going to give you the last word. Yeah, I mean, I just will add on to that little uh, bit. It's it's an important thing. It's true. We should acknowledge that we don't have the long-term data on what happens. But I do want to point out that we accept many other risks in life, and we do many other things to make decisions and expose our bodies to things without knowing what the long-term effects are. Um, and so it all becomes, you know, an important thing to measure against what what are the risks of not accepting the vaccine at this point because of what I might, uh, you know, not be protected against. So it's important to keep that all in context. Okay. And uh, that is all the time we have. Dr. (laughs) Carrie Bowman and Dr. Susie Hota, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Libby. That's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, as we've been discussing, there is more big news coming on the mandatory vaccination front. The chief medical officer is making an announcement right after this show. He will declare that vaccination is mandatory for health and long-term care workers, workers who deal with vulnerable populations. There is some speculation that education workers will not be far behind. Now, also with health news, the U.S. is expected to offer booster shots to all people there eight months after their second dose. Israel is also offering, already offering that to people over 65 months after their second dose. And Dr. Moore is going to have an announcement about that in Ontario as well, coming up right after the show. Now, here Justin Trudeau said this morning that we have agreements in place to get enough vaccine to offer those booster shots for everyone. So what do you think? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. Now I'd like to welcome Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network, and Dr. Carrie Bowman, a bioethicist at the University of Toronto. Welcome and thank you for being with us. Happy to do so, Libby. Okay, so uh, there have been long-standing calls for the government, the Ontario government, to put this mandatory vaccination policy in place, and it looks like they are finally going to do that. Dr. Hota. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a great move to try and improve on that circle of protection that we offer, you know, people who are vulnerable within healthcare settings, within long-term care, and, you know, ultimately, I'd be supportive of this going out into the education sector where we have a large group of people who are unvaccinated. That's people under the age of 12 um, in congregate type settings, which are schools. So I, I think that these are all positive moves to try and protect all Ontarians. Um, and, uh, you know, I look forward to hearing that message. Uh, Dr. Bowman? Yeah, no, I, you know, I'm supportive, Libby. I mean, there's clearly an elevated ethical responsibility of healthcare workers that really supersedes, you know, uh, you know, their themselves and, and focuses on the patient. It, it depends what we mean by mandatory. And my, my, my understanding of this, and please correct me, Susie, or, or you, Libby, if I've got this wrong, is that people would need to be regularly tested if, in fact, they're not, like, people are not going to be sacked, is what I understand. They'd be regularly tested. Um, and I think that's much more reasonable than firing people. It's going to it's going to put a lot of strain on them. Um, I get that, but uh, they've kind of made a choice. I get it when it extends to other groups, and and maybe that's where you're going next with this question. But uh, you know, a point I want to make as an ethicist, and I know people may not want to hear this. I want to be very clear here. This is not you know true, clear, informed, free and informed consent. It's not. People will. There's a small subset of people that will be vaccinated against their will. So we are moving ourselves out of the normal parameters of how we practice healthcare ethically within this country. I want to be very clear on that. Uh, I, I want to drill down on that in a bit. Now, uh, looking at what we've seen about this uh, so far, Dr. Hota, it does not look any different from what is already in place at the University Health Network, where uh, people who deal with the public health care workers have to prove they're vaccinated or show a positive test, a, a negative test, excuse <laughs> me. So I want to know, um, how is that working out, even logistically, what if any additional strain is there on the system, what strain is there on budgets? Uh, I've also heard kind of stories that, you know, people who are unvaccinated by choice get time off to get their tests while the people who have done the right thing uh, have to cover for them. Yeah, so, you know, I will say there, there are sort of two components to this. And my understanding is exactly as you've outlined that this is not you know, you're, you must get vaccinated or you're going to lose your job, your employment. It really is a, 
we're making a statement that vaccination is required here. This is our expectation. And I think that in itself is a powerful message that, you know, healthcare facilities are going to be sending to their employees or staff, physicians, et cetera, um, to kind of set the bar. But if you do not or cannot get vaccinated or you're unable to show us the proof of that vaccination, um, then we would be implementing this rapid testing on a regular basis and a frequent basis because that's what you would need to try and capture, you know, any useful information from a strategy like that on a regular basis until you, or unless you change your mind. And and so that that policy is something that we not very long ago did implement in our hospital uh, already. And, you know, it does take quite a bit of work. You have to plan that. Um, we've actually, I think you convinced some people that, you know, maybe on the, on the fence that, uh, you know, they'd prefer to get vaccinated after they've gotten the information rather than, um, you know, go through the testing on a regular basis. And so it may help to improve rates a little bit too. Uh, but implementing it does take some work. Um, and there are different ways that it can be done. You know, people can be sent home with rapid tests and appropriate instructions. I mean, we are talking about healthcare workers. So, you know, this is something that, uh, for many healthcare workers, it is feasible to do that. Um, so, you know, I think there are different model, models that can be implemented that aren't quite as labor intensive or expensive, but it does require that planning and it requires that kind of all the tools in the background to get it going. And, and there, so, so it is, is the answer yes, it, it, it it's cumbersome and yes, it's expensive uh, in your, you know, early experience of it. Well, I, I think that there are definitely uh, expenses associated with it, uh, as well as uh, a lot of effort associated with it. But, you know, if it's the right thing to do, then I think that, that the important thing is to focus on just making it happen. And luckily, with a few places like our institution already gone going through some of it um, and having ironed out a few of the logistical issues, you know, this hopefully wouldn't be such a, a cumbersome thing for future implementation. Uh, and uh, Dr. Bowman, do you have any thoughts on the practicality of it? If this is the widespread situation for many more workers, uh, possibly in places that aren't quite as well organized as the University Health Network? No, and I, I think you know, I understand. You know, University Health Network I think is taking a very reasonable position. You know what I've seen in the past, uh, non-COVID. Is, is when there was mandatory flu vaccines in one of the teaching hospitals that'll go unnamed that I worked in. <laughs> um, it was very, very hard to, to maintain. People work very hard in hospitals and running around seeing who's, who's done what and who's wearing what, wearing meaning PPE, uh, can be tricky. But, but Susie's right. It will become more streamlined with time. There's no question. And, and it'll find its, its way through. You know, there's going to be people. And look, I literally know some of them that are, are going to push back. Maybe as far as human rights, they think this is wrong. But, um, you know, I, I would argue it, it, it is justified under these, con- these very difficult condi- conditions. It's going to be a much tougher game in long-term care, where you're dealing with people that are racialized, racialized marginalized, um, and again, a small amount of people, but it's going to be much, much tougher, I would say. And I've, I've worked with many PSWs in, in my working life as well. Okay, we've got to take a break, and I've got to say uh, the phone lines are filling up, so we will come back with this on the other side of the break. I'll take a few uh, calls, and I also want to get to this question of booster shots, so uh, let's get that break out of the way. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now... Fight back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It is day three of the election campaign. Perfect timing for our crack strategy panel. And the latest poll from Ipsos has the Liberals at 36%, while Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives would earn 31%. Jagmeet Singh's NDP would get about 20%. The CBC poll tracker, which aggregates polls, shows similar numbers, which would put the Liberals in spitting distance of a majority, though that may be difficult to achieve. Now, those numbers are virtually the same as they were last month, even though 56% of Canadians now say the election should not have been called during the pandemic. So it doesn't look like voters are punishing Justin Trudeau for that. 
The polls also show that 93% of liberal supporters are in favor of mandatory vaccinations for certain workers, while 67% of conservative supporters feel the same way about that. That's a big difference. And making it compulsory for federal workers and federally regulated employees was the liberals' last announcement before the election call. I think the Liberals made the correct call that this will be the ballot question. Others call it a wedge issue. Do you agree with me? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And by the way, an Angus Reid poll today finds that More than 80% of vaccinated Canadians say they would not have a lot of sympathy for unvaccinated people who get the virus. And frankly, I have heard people say things that are a lot more extreme on that note. Uh, Now I want to hear what the panel thinks. So I am joined by Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Bob Richardson, Liberal Strategist and Senior Counsel to National Public Relations. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Okay, so uh, first I want to just go uh, th- uh, around the panel very quickly. Do you agree with me that when people get to the ballot box, at least vaccinated people, that's going to be the thing they vote on, starting with Karen? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, quickly, like 10 <laughs> seconds wide, we'll get back to no, it. So I think what the federal government did was very helpful in saying mandatory vaccination. And, you know, with the caveat, of course, that those who choose not to get vaccinated will be subject to regular testing. Because I think that's where most businesses wanted to go. And now um, now we can go there without a fear of a human rights complaint or some other employment action. So I think it was very helpful, and I think that's where the tide is turning. And I think that by the time the election comes, that will be the norm. Okay. John, what do you think? Yeah, I think we're in day three of a, of a 36-day campaign, and um, I, I, I don't think vaccines are, are mandating or how governments decide that what they want to do, be it provincial governments or the federal government or the party leaders uh, on vaccines is going to be the ballot question. Um, I, there's so much more to be talked about in the debate on, on, on various issues, not, in, not least of which, of course, Afghanistan and how this government's been handling foreign affairs. There's a lot of issues, quite frankly, that are going to be out there. So I don't think the ballot, uh, the ballot question has probably been defined, and we probably won't see that being defined until closer to the end of the campaign. Bob, what do you think? Uh, I thought it was a good start for uh, the PM. I thought he dealt with the media well on his first day. Um, you know, look, uh, when you're going for your third term, it's going to be scrappy. Uh, I thought he handled himself well. I thought he was very clear on the issue of vaccines. Uh, but Bob, be... Bob uh, sorry to interrupt. Do you agree with me that that is kind of the wedge issue that will be on people's minds when they get to the ballot? I, I think I think vaccines slash pandemic management it, it would uh, I would broaden it just a little bit, Libby. And I think people give the government good ratings on getting the vaccines here, CERB, SEBA, overall management of that issue, and working with the provinces. So uh, if people want to have an election on that issue, I'd be very comfortable with that. Okay, uh, just drilling down on uh, it a bit, and and we will move on to other things. But, Karen, my thinking on this is that uh, businesses have been clamoring for a way to make sure their employees are vaccinated. Uh, They want vaccine passports if they're necessary to keep business going without a lockdown. And I think that the failure to provide that would uh, prevent people who might be natural conservative voters from voting that way. Yeah, you know, I guess where where why I said no quickly was because um, it, I think you're right in that there was a lot of built up frustration within the business community and the healthcare community and the education community around how are we going to manage a, a fourth wave, and for those who have been vaccinated, we see vaccination as the way out of a fourth wave, and so how 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 do we then you know collectively protect ourselves and our kids 
and our elderly and our economy, you know, when, you know, so clearly it's vaccine policy. And with the frustration of trying to convince people to get vaccinated, when the reality was there was no consequences to not getting vaccinated. And now the federal government has come out and said, well, at least with the federal workforce, there's consequences. And so that is now, I think, enabled what businesses and post-secondary institutes wanted to do anyway, but were hesitant to do. Now we've got the permission to do it. And But I think 36 days from now, the landscape will have changed again. And so if the, you know, if the election were held tomorrow, I think that it might be the ballot issue. Uh, John, I was... Five weeks from now, I'm not sure. Uh, John, uh, out of the corner of my eye, uh, as I was running into the studio here, I was watching uh, Justin Trudeau on the hustings. And basically, the, the thing they were discussing, they said uh, the conservatives are trying to make it look like they have the same policy as we do, but they absolutely do not. Uh, and uh, Aaron O'Toole did call for lots of mandatory testing. I mean, you know, almost I would think that would be very difficult with the tens of thousands of people involved. Yeah, you know, Libby, I would say this and, and this this election and many are calling it the Seinfeld election, which is really there's no reason to have this election. So I think the prime minister uh, as we saw, is going to use this as a wedge issue. There's a reason why he brought this up two days before he was going to go to the RIT, uh, go to the G- Governor General's um, residence to, to drop the wit on Sundays, because he knew that this was going to be a wedge issue, and that's his prerogative to do. But, you know, it's funny, though, when on Friday the 13th, Friday, August 13th, the, the, the Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, uh, there was an edict from his, gov- his government's chief human resources officer who sent an attached letter to the federal employees basically saying that Alternate measures like testing would be used for those who are unvaccinated. And of course, that letter now got pulled down uh, from the government's website. Funny enough, after there's been some controversy around it. So, right, look, just, you know just to just to inter- just to interject, John, uh, the prime minister was uh, okay. The liberal leader, excuse me, was asked about that, and he said the letter was taken down because it was inaccurate. So, yeah, did you notice, though, Libby, when he was asked if he or his staff or anybody else had anything to do with that letter, he actually didn't answer that question? And nor did he answer how he would enforce uh, the edict. Well, so all I'm saying, though, is that there's a lot of hypocrisy here when it comes to this. And if, you, if you're thinking of that this isn't a wedge issue, then, then, you know, think again, because it is a wedge issue. And he's politicizing it. Now, at the end of the day, every leader has said that they, they demand that, they, that everybody should be and ought to be vaccinated. Some have, some have gone far to say they're going to mandate it, and others have gone as far as to say that people should be tested on a regular basis uh, to ensure that those, are, that those who aren't vaccinated uh, remain, remain, uh, remain uh, the, the positives remain negative. But what I would say, though, Libby, there's 80% of the population, by and large, who have gotten either the first or the second vaccine. Vaccine clinics are open and in some cases are wide open. There's no lineups. There's now mobile units going to those remote areas where people couldn't get vaccinated to get vaccinated. The, the, re- the remaining people are, for some reason, either have health issues or have issues with respect to getting vaccinated. So if you're going to mandate them, then you better tell them what's going to happen if you don't. And the one thing the prime minister has not done is basically said what the ramifications will be for those who decide who are not going to vaccinate after he mandates it. And that's an issue. Okay, well, you know, uh, I have to agree with you on that. He did not say. And I think uh, that that big percentage, which is preventing us from getting to herd immunity, I think most of them don't want to get vaccinated uh, because there's there's ample opportunity to. um, Bob Richardson, is he blowing smoke because he didn't say how he would enforce it? He hasn't consulted the big unions yet. are, so are we going to end up with some kind of watered-down version? I think uh, stay tuned. I think he will uh, clearly outline what uh, what the penalties are for non-vaccination. And I think the government needs to be swift and strong on those issues. And I think Canadians expect that, and you'll see that from the Prime Minister. What we have seen from the Conservative leader is he's been like an Olympic gy- gymnast. He's contorted himself in about seven different uh, positions on the vaccine issue. And and his problem is he's concerned about votes bleeding to the PPC, and he's concerned about insulting Kenny, who has completely mismanaged the pandemic, and Ford, 
who has completely mismanaged the pandemic. So he's locked himself into a corner. Uh, and he was also, when he was running for leading, leader, pretending to be super right wing. And now he's uh, he's morphing back into being a moderate. So I can't take them terribly seriously on the vaccine issue. I can't take their suggestions terribly seriously on the vaccine issue. I think the government has done a good job overall on pandemic management. I think most Canadians think so, too. Happy to go to the polls on that issue. Okay, yeah, most Canadians, by the way, are not happy to go to the polls. But uh, as I said in the intro... Well, tro- let, let's, let's chat about that just for two seconds. Um, there's never been a poll that, since Caesar's been on the throne where people say that they want to go to an election. So that is a bit usually of a red herring. Um, minority governments in this country usually last 480 days. This one has been 665, longer than most. Um, the uh, uh, I think the government could have worked maybe a little bit more with um, with the opposition, but the opposition, particularly the Conservatives, have been intransigent for the last year and a half. I think it's time to go to the people. Let's let them decide who they want to run the country. Because at the end of the day, they're the boss. Uh, Karen, uh, Jagmeet Singh, who is coming across, I must say, as extremely personable, has said that he and and he obviously has been propping up the minority government he said he would support them so we wouldn't have to go to this pandemic election it it does not look like voters will be punishing the liberals for this i mean you know what, what is that a totally a non-starter no i don't think so and i think just um you know while i agree with many things that bob says you know on the on the question of when the election is called that's typically governments go to the polls because they have to, right? Because there's a fixed election date. So there's never a question typically without, if it's not in a, unless it's a minority situation, typically you don't have a poll. Do we have to go to the election? Because we have fixed election dates that say when we're going to the election. So in this case, there's a fixed election date that the liberals chose to ignore. Yeah. And that's, and that's, and that, and that is material because they had no, I mean, they could talk about the obstructionism of the Conservatives. I don't think that's actually true or fair. And the reality is that they had the NDP that was going to work alongside them. So I think that there is an emerging question. Was Why was this election necessary? And is it just because Trudeau thought he could win? And then, you know, the narrative there is, this, so is this really about Trudeau? Well, I, so, I mean, I think the answer to that is clear. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. so it, 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 so I, I think that there is a narrative there. And I think that, um, the vaccine mandate and, you know, and not, I don't want to dwell on it much further, but, but the reality is that there's not a lot of light between Trudeau's position and Aaron O'Toole's position on mandatory vaccines because you can't fire anybody who doesn't get vaccinated. And everybody knows that. And so the reality is you'll, they'll get another job or they'll have rapid testing or they'll work from home, which is what we have now, which is what Aaron O'Toole has been saying. So I, I think that it, you know, it started out as a bold policy, but, the, but the reality is, the implementation of that policy is is not that different from what the conservatives are saying. So I, I think that that is a bit a bit of a of a minefield for Trudeau to navigate right now, as he's trying to suggest it's different than what it is. But you know, and that's why I think that five weeks from now, I, I agree with John. I don't I don't actually know what the ballot question is going to be yet. John, um, so today the Liberals have focused on childcare, and they made the big billion-dollar child care province, and they've made agreements with eight of the provinces. Uh, is, is that the right way to focus? Because uh, it affects, actually, mostly future parents. Uh, but it is a very marked difference from the approach of the conservatives. Uh, you know, are they, are they putting too much store in that particular policy item versus... Aaron O'Toole and the 160-page uh, policy book that he dropped yesterday? Which I thought was, was incredible. You know, I thought it was very smart for him to be the, one of the first uh, of the party leaders to, uh, to launch their, their policy platform. Um, but let me just say this. One, one thing what Bob was saying about this election and, and, and sort of the need to, to, to have it, I, I disagree with everything Bob said <clears throat> but one which is to say that, yes, people do not necessarily want to go into election, and I, I agree with them on that front. But, but let's be clear, this is the Liberals doing, the opposition enforces election, 
the prime minister himself went to the governor general to dissolve it when 99% of the votes, if not 100% of the votes over the last two years, have been in the Liberals' favor. Because either the, either the NDP or the Bloc or all three of the parties, the Green, the Bloc, and the NDP, have always supported the Liberals. So there was absolutely no reason for him to be able to go to this election and cause for a high $500 million election campaign in a time when, when the wave was going up. And I think that is a big issue that people will, and that's why the polls are showing the way they are. Now, to your question, Olivia, regarding the, the, uh, the, the child care, no, no surprise that the Conservatives and the Liberals have a differing view on this. It's philosophical. The Liberals believe in a one-size-fits-all kind of a program where, you know, trying to get the provinces to, uh, and, and buy them off with, with, you know, millions of dollars, billions of dollars of money for, for child care. The Conservatives have always been clear, which is, Parents are the best judge of where their kids should go, and having a tax credit to the limit that they are pr- proposing is going to give the freedom to parents to be able to, to choose where their kids want to go, how they want to be able to be childcare. Because not every parent, not every childcare is the same. Some work part time, some work from home, some need it from nine to five, others need it for certain times. And a one size fits all is a problem for the vast majority of Canadians. Okay, Bob, uh, you know. Um... <clears throat> John just alluded to the numbers, and some of the numbers show, and the, and the fact that the Liberals were dropping in the polls just before the election call. You know, they could well end up in the same situation with another minority. How dangerous is that? Well, I think uh, we'll let that. Uh, you know what? I always say, let the people decide. They'll decide whether it's a minority or majority government. I believe it's tough to get a majority in this country right now because of the, the number of political parties out there. So, you know, if, if you're asking me, I think the Liberals will do well. I think they will form the go- next government, whether it's minority or majority. I couldn't really tell you right now. I, I think that's a tall uh, task, so we'll wait and see. But on the issue of child care, I could not uh, be more pleased with the Liberal approach on child care. I think it makes a lot of sense. It creates more spaces. Um, it's what people in the child care um, sector think is the right approach. They think the tax credit approach by the Conservatives doesn't create a single space and doesn't move child care forward at all. So, uh, so I, and you know, there's a reason why quite often women have been more responsible for ch- child care o- over the years. And you will notice there is a massive difference in terms of, of the number of women voting for the Liberal Party versus the Conservative Party. And one of those reasons is the child care platform. Well, it's it's interesting, you know, in the last breakdown I saw of the Liberal vote, it was, yes, mostly women, but, but women over 65 who presumably have been relieved of their child care duties. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm a former pollster, and can I say this? And I, I love Angus <laughs> Reid. I used to work for him. Uh, but like all these polls right now for the next two or three weeks, whether we're up, down, in or out, I think we should take them all with a little bit of a grain of salt. Uh, I think until the debates and then after Labor Day, I think, I think those ones will be, uh, uh, great. Like we, you said, Libby earlier, the Liberals were down by four points before the start of the election. That was one nanos poll on, 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 on like one week survey. You know, there was seven other polls that said exactly the opposite at the same time. So so I, I, I caution people on the polls front right now. Okay. Uh, I want to take a call before we uh, pivot to provincial politics. Uh, so Eileen in Halton Hills. Hello, Eileen. Hi. Go Hi ahead. There. You're on the air. Hi. Yes, um, I agree with what Ford's done with the, um, the you know, the testing and the very, and all the sectors. And I just feel for, for the federal employees with, uh, you know, mandatory vaccines or have a medical exemption. And I think one of the reasons is, um, is I went to my own doctor for consultation about the vaccination. I wasn't just going to stand up in, a, in line for it unless I re- went to my doctor for consultation. And she told me right out, she says, we don't know the long-term effects. And so, um, with that in mind, I just think that, the, you know, Trudeau should just make mandatory testing and, um, instead of this vaccination, because he's, you know, it's people's livelihood, the federal employees. I know where, you know, that's just my thought. I think the testing definitely. And, um, okay. Thanks for yeah. your call. We get okay. it. Appreciate Thanks. your call. 
Uh, yeah, um, it's it's interesting uh, that uh, that you know a lot of people who have taken many many vaccinations, uh, some of which are newer than others. Uh, that is uh, that's the reason they cite, uh, along with conspiracy theories and and stuff. So I think that really the people who haven't likely won't for the most part. But turning to provincial politics, as soon as uh, we're off the air here on Fight Back, we are going to hear from the chief medical officer of health saying, yes, as Bob reported, vaccines are mandatory in high risk settings. And, uh, you know, he it's already in effect, say, at University Health Network, that strict testing protocols for people who who are not vaccinated, though uh, I've also heard stories that the people who opt for testing, which is already in place, are getting all kinds of time off to do that while uh, the vaccinated people have to kind of cover for them. Karen, uh, what, what do you think about the provincial government finally acceding to this? Well, I think it was the right move and where the public would expect the government to land. And I will say with, you know, we're hearing about education workers and, and I think, you know, the credit there to the government was also, you know, credit goes to the unions, right? Because the Ontario Medical Association, the Ontario Nurses Association, as I understand, um, some unions representing teachers were asking the government to make vaccines mandatory. And so I think that the one thing that Ontario has done differently, it, it actually had the support of the unions prior to implementing the policy, because that support will be critical in order to getting buy-in from the members who might be on the fence. Yeah, and it's it's, it's interesting. Yesterday, I talked to the head of PSAC, 160,000 people in the federal pub- public service, and said, hey, we were not consulted. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. not consulted and, and got a heads up that it was happening, I think, you know, uh, an hour or something before. So there you go. Uh, John, um, Again, provincially, uh, you know, a lot of people think that, uh, if anything, this is late coming around to this, that it may not give people, for instance, in education enough time to get it done. Uh, What do you think? Uh, Better late than never? Well, always. And I always appreciate governments, no matter what political stripe they are, you know, if if they do listen to to their citizens and their voters and and on research, whatever, you know, be it late or not, I think it's the right decision. And if you recall, Libya, in our show last week, I actually said that as much as I'm not in favor of mandating vaccines writ large, I do think, and I did say that, you know, for healthcare workers and for those frontline uh, folks who who deal with the vulnerable, you know, some level of mandating vaccines or, or testing or some rigor uh, should be the case, uh, and, and I think the government, if they do go this way, and it looks like they will, and we'll hear shortly if they if they are, uh, I think it's a smart move and, and uh, you know well needed. Be it late or not, I think it's just getting it done is, is important. Uh, Bob, what do you think? Will people uh, forgive Dove, Doug Ford for taking so long to come around on this? I look. I I think I wish the government would have done it faster, but uh, I agree with the decision. I think the, the it's uh, it's a smart one. And I tend to agree with John in that, look, uh, governments can change their mind from time to time. There's nothing evil about that. And if they have and if they took a good look at it, and as Karen said, they worked with the unions, too, as well. I think that's positive. I'm glad they're doing it. I think it's a step in the right direction. And I think it uh, I think it shows a a degree of that they're maturing on this whole issue. And uh, I think that's good news, not bad news. Okay, uh, we are starting to run out of time. So going around the table, Karen, what do we have to watch for in the coming week ahead? And and what are you particularly looking for? Well, you know, I think that there's still um, the debate about the mandatory vaccine has not concluded yet. So I I think there's still going to be some noise around that. And, you know, I think it will be interesting to watch everyone that actually ends up on the same page on that one and, and how then that gets messaged and managed. I think that, will, to me, that'll be fun to watch, to be honest. And, you know, I think that there is a discussion that hasn't yet been had about childcare and whether or not it's a parent responsibility, it's a government responsibility. And if it's a government responsibility, is it the federal government or the provincial government? And I think it's interesting that Ontario hasn't signed on yet because it creates a lot of problems to have $10 a day daycare in Ontario that are different 
than it is in Nova Scotia. And so, you know, it's, these programs sound great, but how they get implemented is very is not always great. And I think that discussion will actually be very interesting if it is um, if it is actually allowed to happen. Mm-hmm. And jurisdictional fights are always so fascinating for voters. John, what are you looking <laughs> oh, yeah, for? Right, Libby? Yeah. <laughs> well, especially especially during an election, especially during a federal election campaign, jurisdictional fights are are more poignant and, and sort of uh, elevated to uh, to different status because of it. But I, there's no reason for Ontario at this stage of the game to. Uh, uh, to sign on to this. I think that obviously it behooves the government to wait to see what happens after the election campaign because there are no tools that a completely different set of, of rules and, 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 uh, and, and, uh, sites on, on daycare. But as far as the next week or so, I'm just interested to see how the campaigns federally are going to be working on this, uh, on this pandemic election. And, uh, and now that Aaron O'Toole is traveling for the first day today, and it'll be interesting to see how that, uh, all plays out over the course of the next week. Before I give Bob the last word, I am reminded of uh, Kim Campbell getting hammered for saying that an election was not the time to discuss serious issues. <laughs> uh, I don't know how cynical it is to be laughing about that. But Bob, I'm giving you the last word, what to look for next week. Uh, I know you don't think it's the polls. Well, you know what? I think this uh, election gets uh, is going to be pretty quiet until the debates, which are September 8th and 9th. And then I think we're going to have a real sprint to the finish. Till then, it's a bit of a phony war. I actually think all three uh, leaders have done a pretty good job in the first few days. Uh, I don't think any of them uh, have done any colossal gaffes. So uh, I think I think the political parties are going to be cautious for the next 10 days and not uh, put themselves, try not to put themselves into uh, too difficult a position. Okay. I, I th- would agree with that, yeah. Thank you so much, Bob Richardson, John Capobianco, and Karen Stinson. And uh, I'll, I'll miss you guys next week. I will be on holiday during this quiet time. Oh, <laughs> enjoy. Baby. Enjoy your holiday, but you're going to miss out on some good fun. Well, well I'm going to be in B.C., so it'll be good to see you know, how people think on the other end of the country. So, uh, But uh, I'll, I'll miss you guys, and I'm sure you'll have a great chat with Jane. Awesome. Great. All the best, Libby. Okay, thanks a lot. Enjoy, Libby. Cheers. Thanks. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will talk to a couple of our regular doctor contributors. There's big news on that front coming. Uh, Mandatory vaccination for uh, people who work with vulnerable populations. Uh, That is confirmed. That's going to be announced at 1, and also this whole issue of booster shots when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.